Today, Maricopa County is one of the fastest growing counties in the United States, but it wasn't always that way. For people like Carol Lowe Beeth, the ability to trace her family back generations means she can remember a smaller, more intimate Phoenix. My aunt, my mother's sister, came here in 1894 in a covered wagon. My mother uh, and her four brothers and my grandparents came here in July of 1909. Carol was born in 1937. She remembers small-town Phoenix as a city of characters, and everyone knew who they were. You couldn't miss them. Uh, We've had so many legends. We have a man we used to call Bible Joe, and he wore the most pointed boots I ever saw, and he'd stand on the street corners with his Bible, and he would uh, preach to everybody. There was a man that had uh, no legs, and he rode what would be now a skateboard, and he sold newspapers, and he would scoot up and down the sidewalks of Phoenix selling those papers. So, I mean, Phoenix was alive with characters. Today, we're diving into the history of one of those local legends, someone Carol remembers seeing growing up. Her name was Hattie Mosier, and we can thank one of our listeners for alerting us to her. My name is Duran Lugo. I'm from Phoenix. Duran's name may sound familiar if you're involved in any Facebook groups about Phoenix's history. He's a local history buff who is pretty active in them. I see him all the time. He said he's heard of Hattie Mosier before, but he hadn't been able to find a lot of information on her. I mean, just hearing, you know, just hearing some of the stories over over the past, uh, you know, many years, you know, of her being rich and then going the opposite, going the opposite way to being, you know, poor and, and kind of destitute, that kind of led me to uh, ask the question about what happened to her. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. Today, we're diving into the rise and downfall of one of early Phoenix's wealthiest denizens. Telling this story is podcast editor Katie O'Connell. When we first received Duran's question, I was really intrigued. I'd never heard of Hattie Mosier. I mean, there aren't any streets or buildings named after her. At least there aren't any now. So who was she? And what, if anything, do people remember her for now? I enlisted some help to find out. Paul Sharbeck, and um, I'm, I'm actually a second-generation Phoenician. Paul is a local history aficionado who's contributed to the books Phoenix Then and Now and Phoenix Past and Present. Well, I mean, there's, you know, quite an interesting, you know, story with her, and it kind of starts with um, her family, the Lount family. I couldn't verify the exact place and year when Hattie was born. One record showed that she was born in Michigan in 1864. But since it's the only record I found, I can't say that for certain. We do know, however, that her family moved to Prescott in 1878, and they arrived in Phoenix the following year. That's when her father, Samuel D. Lount, started his business, then called Phoenix Ice Factory. 
out here, he just figured this this place needs ice, and uh, you know it's not very it's not really available anywhere uh, except for in the winter time. At the time, ice was used for refrigeration. But it, it was also used uh, in different uh, ice cream shops. There were actually several ice cream shops in downtown Phoenix. That's Steve Schumacher. Steve is a semi-retired change consultant and local history buff who has also looked into Hattie's background. Not only had Samuel Lount struck proverbial gold with his idea to sell ice in the desert, but he had created the means to do so as well. An article from the Arizona Republic said that Samuel was credited with being one of the first men to invent the machinery necessary to manufacture ice. Samuel Lowndes Ice Factory was located in downtown Phoenix from 4th Street to 5th Street between Washington and Adams Streets. Of course, if somebody's going to come up with that idea and have the equipment so forth and build it and start making ice, it's like instant millionaire. Hattie and her brother grew up in the lap of luxury, nestled in the private land their father purchased. He owned a tract of land in what's now downtown Phoenix, from Van Buren Street to Taylor Street on the north and Central to 2nd Street on the east. It's where part of Arizona State University's downtown campus is located. And certainly having a successful um, ice you know, making business, uh, certainly they, they lived quite comfortably. They had multiple homes. Their mother, Julia, was a socialite who was credited with growing the first date palms to maturity in Phoenix. Hattie and her brother were well-educated, she loved music, and she actually knew how to play several instruments. As one of the richest families in Arizona at the time, everything from Hattie's simple comings and goings made headlines— I found an article in the Arizona Republican, which is what it used to be named, noting which concerts she had attended. It was even noted if she traveled somewhere. But the attention she drew wasn't always positive. Hattie was a bold, pioneering woman. It was a tendency that didn't always sit well with the greater public. She was one of the first, if not the first, uh, uh, ladies to actually ride a, a, a bike around town, which I guess uh, I guess was not a thing that they were supposed to do or or just didn't do for whatever reason. Um, so she was one of the first ones to do that. So Hattie would marry Charles Mosier, although I was unable to uncover when that marriage took place. Charles was an early editor of the Arizona Republican. The duo moved to Denver, where both Charles and Hattie worked for the Denver Post. And um, she was actually even a reporter uh, at that time as well. Hattie and Charles would have one child, a daughter named Julia, in 1886. But uh, things started kind of unraveling with the, with the with the marriage not too long after they had the the baby, a, a girl. And uh, he basically just kind of up and left them. Hattie would have the marriage annulled in February of 1892. She claimed abandonment, and Charles did not deny the charge. And, and uh, they, you know, it was at that point where basically Hattie and, and her daughter were, were on their own. <laughs> 
Hattie and Julia move back to Phoenix, where it seems like Julia developed a little bit of her mother's attitude. At one point, she was part of a surprise party that carried their shenanigans into the offices of the Republican just to disrupt work that day. Julia also developed her mother's love of music. Based on newspaper archives, Julia and Hattie lived in Germany together for at least a decade while Julia studied music at a conservatory in Leipzig. In 1913, Hattie wrote of her daughter, Julia has just made her graduation. She is the only girl who was ever graduated here for orchestral work since the conservatory was founded by Mendelssohn. After moving back stateside, Julia married, moved to California, and had a daughter. But Julia would die shortly afterward in 1920. Her obituary didn't list a cause of death. Neither Paul nor Steve were certain of a cause either. But Hattie would live for two and a half decades without her daughter. And from everything I've read, uh, they were, Hattie and her daughter were, you know, extremely close. And that was kind of the uh, kind of the beginning of the end, I, I think, for her, even though Hattie lived many, many years later. Hattie's parents had both died by 1907. Her daughter Julia died in 1920, and her brother would die a mere four years later in 1924. That left Hattie with her family's business and their land. I found two references in the Republic saying that Hattie's inheritance was worth a million dollars, but it doesn't specify whether that was in 1920s currency or more modern currency. No matter the value, though, Hattie had all that money, but she was alone. Uh, She really didn't have any close family members that maybe could have helped her out. The loss of her family, particularly her daughter Julia, was something Hattie never recovered from. To her credit, she tried to keep going. She started developing new projects on her land, including a building that would serve as a public market and a hotel, as well as another building that would serve as a tea house. She also ran for office. In 1922, she ran on a Democratic ticket to be a state senator from Maricopa County. She said she had, quote, an equal interest in conserving the money paid for taxes so that her interest is the same as that of every other citizen. It's a rather fitting quote to keep in mind for what happens later. Hattie lost the primary election, but undeterred, she ran for the city commission in 1923 and also lost that in the primary election as well. At the same time she attempted to develop her empire, she also began a long, increasingly fought legal campaign against the city of Phoenix. Yeah, she was pretty much um, suing the city, I believe, most of the time. She, she had started quite a few properties within that acreage that she owned downtown. And um, when it came time to pay property taxes, she just, uh, for whatever reason, uh, didn't feel like she needed to or or had an obligation to. uh, For various reasons, I've heard 
you know, some things where she didn't feel like um, uh, contributing to a road resurfacing was going to do anything or that they'd have to resurface it anyway a few years later or that a certain property wasn't worth a certain amount. So she just kind of started not paying property taxes. In 1927, Hattie sued the city, saying that it had evaluated her property incorrectly. After all, the city had increased the value of her property by $135,000 in one year. Hattie took umbrage with that estimation and accused the city of trying to extort her for more money. But the city argued that it was a necessary cost. Phoenix had started to grow and develop. Paved roads were replacing mud streets. Sewage and water systems were being installed instead of privies. Hattie's downtown property was part of that development, whether she liked it or not. The combination of her land's prime location and the development around it meant that its value was growing. The court ultimately reduced how much her property value had increased, but it agreed that her land was becoming more and more valuable and that Hattie would have to pay taxes accordingly. She disagreed on principle. It was her land, not the city's. And I do think she was probably somewhat misunderstood. If, if you read a lot of her quotations, uh, she was always talking about it wasn't about the money, it was about the principle. Ultimately, Hattie's income wasn't keeping up with the growing value of her property. When she couldn't or wouldn't pay her taxes, a tax lien was placed on parts of her property. But once a lien is placed on something, she couldn't sell it, which meant that her debts were compounding and her legal battle with the city intensified. At one point in time, Paul said that Hattie offered the city a parcel of land worth $100,000. The city needed a place to build a new courthouse and county building, and she tried to give them just that. But the city turned her down. To me, the only thing... I can decipher from that is that they just really didn't want anything to do with her because of all the lawsuits, and they thought that might just bring on more problems. I combed through more than 400 archival results for Hattie Mosier. By the time I was halfway through, my head was spinning. At one point in time, there was a headline that just said, Mrs. Mosier has new grievance. I could not keep track of the number of times Hattie was sued or the number of times she sued someone else. Sometimes it was a matter of business, like when she sued tenants for missing rent. But her battle with the city was the most contentious, and the result would not land in Hattie's favor. And then slowly but surely, she started, you know, losing all that property that she owned because you know, if you don't pay taxes after a certain amount of time, uh, even back then, you know, the city or whoever owns, whoever you owe the taxes to is going to start, you know, foreclosing on, on those properties. And that, that's kind of what happened. She just started losing um, one parcel after another uh, because of taxes she didn't feel like she needed to pay. Eventually, Hattie lost all but two parcels of land, 
which were valued at less than $900 at the time of her death. The city repossessed the rest of her land and the buildings on them. The legal campaign she mounted with her attorney, J.B. Woodward, made no difference. One of the buildings Hattie lost was known as Mosier's Folly. Paul said his research drummed up conflicting reports about which building that was. It could have been the public market or the tea house. But at any rate, it was a building that was never completed. It was actually, uh, it was almost like a building on stilts. It was three stories high. When Hattie was evicted from her house, she lived in Mosier's Folly for a spell. When it, when she lost it and it got auctioned off for the, again, for the property taxes and, and there was a new owner, um, from what I've read, he, he allowed her to stay there um, and she, I, I believe for a, a certain amount of time, she did live in the basement in that. And then um, eventually, I think there was a new owner of that building and she couldn't stay there anymore. After that, Paul said she was allowed to stay rent-free in a room that was south of the post office building on Central and Fillmore. Once one of Phoenix's richest denizens, by 1940, Hattie would be found roaming the streets of downtown in tennis shoes and outdated ball gowns. There were reports of her rummaging through garbage bins for scraps. That's when Carol saw her as a child. My main memory is we were walking down the street and my grandmother nudged my mother and said, there's Hattie. Carol said she was around four or five years old at the time, meaning it was around 1941 or 1942 when she bumped into Hattie. Hattie was wearing a ball gown, walking past stores like Christie's and Woolworth's downtown. And what I remember most, what caught my attention, Bless her soul. She had on bright red lipstick, and she was really wrinkled. And the lipstick had bled up into the wrinkles all over her mouth. It was kind of a mess. And that's what I saw about Hattie. Hattie Mosier died on November 1st, 1945. The front page story of her death said she had collapsed four days earlier from an acute intestinal disorder. She gave her age as 62, but it was likely that she was older, possibly in her 80s. The story about her death said she was survived only by her sister-in-law. It did not mention anything about Hattie's granddaughter. Items, such as mementos from the year she spent in Germany with her daughter, were auctioned off. Hattie Mosier's legacy would fade over the decades. She was remembered somewhat by locals like Carol. In 1973, there was a Ramada Inn on First Street and Polk, land that had once belonged to Hattie. The owner named the restaurant at the hotel Hattie Mosier's in honor of her, but the restaurant was eventually closed. The last time I saw it referenced in our archives was in 1981. There are a few ways we can remember Hattie Mosier's story today. For Carol, it's a sad story. 
Well, it, to me, it's sad. Um, I, she just lost everything because she just decided she wasn't going to pay taxes, and um, it, it, it was sad. It was a sad demise of a little princess that um, ended up, like, sad and not demented, but lost, just lost. Paul agrees that it's a sad story, and there's no doubting that. But there are elements of good to it as well. I think she probably was stubborn to a fault, and and a lot of that got her into trouble. Um, I, I do think she was ahead of her time in a lot of ways. And this is the assessment that I like to focus on. I was drawn to the story of Hattie Mosher because of her pioneering spirit. She wasn't afraid to make waves, whether that meant she was riding a bike when it was considered undignified for women to do so, or working as a reporter, or running for office just a decade after women in Arizona were allowed to vote. Hattie suffered losses like the rest of us. Those losses would shape her later years. But she certainly had a wild time in the beginning. And for better or worse, she did it on her own terms. So that's the story of Hattie Mosier. Her life, her downfall, and her legacy. Kayla, you grew up in Phoenix. Had you ever heard of Hattie Mosier? I'm going to be honest with you, I had not. So I was right alongside the listeners on this one. So thank you for sharing that story with us. Listeners, let us know if there's anyone else in Phoenix's history who you'd like to hear more about. We love falling down rabbit holes in our archives, so we're glad to look into those stories. You can let us know your questions at valley101podcast.azcentral.com, or you can find us on Twitter at valley101pod. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe and rate our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today. I'm Kayla White, signing off until next week.